Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast again today. And as usual, I'm going to ask Katie what's going on in Iowa. I can hear the birds chirping this morning, Katie. Your bird feeder must be busy. It's not actually. I think they're pissed off because I need to go fill the feeders. Oh, so what you're hearing is angry birds going, WTF, lady. Yeah. You have made us dependent on you, and now you are not here. No, no, you've not done your part in this. Yeah. yeah. Not a lot. <laughs> Were you not ready for that question? I I feel like there should be stuff going on, but it's that time of year where the, we're just waiting. Mostly it hasn't rained in several weeks, so now we're in that continual space where my life pro tip is to never tell any farmer what the weather forecast says, no matter how nicely they ask, because you will be on the receiving end of their feelings about it. Right. Because As if clearly, you're the meteorologist who, you know. Yes, like... clearly the access to the forecast denotes control of said forecast. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So just tell Hopefully. them to check their own app or listen to yeah. the radio or however they watch the weather channel, yeah. however they get their many forms of weather, through, not through you. Whatever they do. It's not my problem. Yesterday, though, my mom was here with her coon dog and we're having a serious raccoon problem in our neighborhood just because it is so dry. And I do, I feel for them because they have babies to feed. However, our neighbor had a raccoon take a full-grown chicken out of his front yard in the middle of the afternoon a few days ago. Our benevolent feelings are over. So my mom was here this weekend with her coon dog and he managed to tree a raccoon inside a antique all crop combine in the back of Jim's shed yesterday at 5.30 in the morning. And if you ever want to hear a racket, a coon dog, a lab, and an Australian shepherd with a raccoon stuck inside a combine, inside a metal pole shed, is really... Is that a nice way to wake up? Quite a thing. I was awake real quick. I took the 22 out there, saw where they were, and went, nope, good luck, you guys. And turned around and came back in the house because you weren't going to shoot up the combine. <sighs> that too, but there was also no way in hell I couldn't get past the middle of the shed without pulling equipment out, and it's not worth it. Yeah. Now we wait, but I don't know if they got the raccoon or not. Yeah. But since they left the shed, I'm going to assume they did because if anyone else here has coon dogs or has ever dealt with hunting dogs. They don't stop until it's dead, generally, which is what they're bred for. But Yeah, their um, purpose. Kind of their purpose. Yeah. So um, does life change much now that the kids aren't in school on your farm, or they just go to the same daycare where they do before and after? They generally get after-school care at daycare during school anyway, so now they just go to daycare for the whole day instead of after right. school. Sure. So now it's pretty pretty same the level of i don't want to say chaos at daycare is a little higher but daycare is not bound to some of the same educational goals sure which is good i don't want my kids to be forced into attainment at all costs also i think it's good for them to have time to screw around and little kids and daycare takes very good care of them and they get healthy meals and they're perfectly safe and blah 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 yes i'm on the daycare board but i'm glad that they get time to just mess around 
Yeah. Yeah. This is their summer holiday, yeah. right? Yeah. The girl child has been asking every morning now if today is the first day of first grade. And right. we are. Many uh, days away from that. One week into summer vacation. And also, you cannot say summer vacation anywhere near her because she assumes that means that today is the day that we are going somewhere. Right. Yes. Vacation um, means you have to leave. Yeah. Yeah. She does want to go back to last summer. We took them to the Circus World Museum in Baraboo, which was the winter home of the Ringling Brothers Circus. Oh, um, neat. Before that shut down, but they have elephants there, so she really wants to go ride an elephant. This is the last year the elephants will be there before they're retired. They do have a circus every day. It's a really cool museum and a really cool place to visit. But having to start every day with telling her that, A, today is not the first day of first grade, and also we are not going to the ocean or to ride elephants today. Right. It's not nice to start your day with that much disappointment for your six-year-old. It's like, hooray, you get to go to daycare. And no matter how cool daycare is, it can't yeah. really compete with riding elephants in the ocean on her way to first grade. That as is true. she thinks yeah. she should be doing. That, that Those are things that she has in her head. Yeah, yeah. so avoid the word graduate to the. Yeah, she did graduate to the big kid class at daycare because she's a first grader now. Yeah. Henry, the boy child, is still in the kindergarten classroom. So I think that's actually been really good for them that they are not together all day and coming home and being together all day. So that's helped matters substantially. That's Um, good. Other than that, nothing. How have you been, Arlene? You had big excitement at your farm this weekend. Yes, this Glad weekend spraying was... spraying got done in time. This weekend was prom. And yes, the spraying got done in time. That needed to get done last week. There's more to be done this week, but that's fine. Um, the tractor got cleaned. The tractor got decorated. We traversed into town at various different routes. So our town is a little tricky to get through with farm equipment because there's a canal system and we are at the middle point of the canal. So there are several bridges that are not all that wide and are swing bridges for boat traffic to get through. So we were trying to get from our farm to the first photo location because you couldn't just have one. Prom didn't start until the evening, but pictures started at noon. So there was a lot of hours of photos and being very, looking very beautiful. Yeah, we... Your daughter did look absolutely gorgeous. Yes, she did look, yeah, she did look very nice. As did the tractor. Lovely, job. (laughs) Yeah, and her date was all right too. Yeah, he was fun. No, he looked handsome. I as well. haven't <laughs> seen any pictures of him, so I'll just take your word for it. Yeah, we the the route straight downtown and then around around the outside edges of town to get to the first location, which is where they're doing photos at the railway museum. So if you want pictures with cabooses, engines, or all other manner of old railway cars, that was the place to be. But it does have a lot of neat porches and areas set up. The staff were really great. They had lots of little nooks and crannies for the kids to to take smaller groups in benches and flowers and all kinds of nice locations. And then there's another small museum in town where they were doing more pictures. So they moved over there. And then we went over to one of the waterfront areas, did some pictures there. Then there was still time to come back to the farm and lounge for a few minutes and get something to eat. Because when you start doing hair at 10 in the morning and it gets to mid-afternoon, you start to get a bit hungry. And then the actual problem was at the high school. And I would say most schools that I've ever heard of, 
in our area anyway, don't do prom at the high school. It would be at like a golf course or maybe a hotel or something. But in our town, they still do it at the high school. And the hospitality teacher was the caterer. So it makes it definitely more affordable. And so that was convenient location wise, too, because we're not very far from the school. And actually, right next to the high school is where my husband's grandmother lives in retirement home. So we called her and did a little drive by pulled into the entry area of the retirement home. And so she could see the girl and the boy and the tractor all decorated. And she recruited a whole bunch of people to come out and say hi and see them. So that was very sweet, too. So they had some adoring fans of the retirement home before they went over to prom. So, yeah, everything went well. It had been super hot this past week, like I don't know what it is in American, but 32, 35 degrees and humid, like just super sticky hot for a few days. But thankfully, the weather changed overnight Friday and Saturday was breezy for sure. Everyone had the tousled hair look, no matter what their hairstylist had done, but it was not nearly as hot. So it was much more comfortable for standing around and taking pictures. So that was good. Did you go to your prom? I did. Yes. Yeah. Back in those days. Presumably not with the... Not with the one you're married to now? No, a different guy. Back in those days, we still had grade 13 here in Ontario. So I graduated almost a year and a half older than my daughter, just based on we had an extra year of high school and I'm a summer birthday and she's a winter. Yeah. And I lived closer to a major city. So we actually went like right downtown into the city to a hotel, had a catered meal, all that kind of stuff. And at that time, we're also we're also on the border of Ontario and Quebec, and the drinking age in Ontario is 19, but in Quebec it's 18. So after prom, then you could go on these like boat tours, and it would basically just brought you across the provincial line, and then anyone who was 18 could drink once you cross that line. So that's what you did after prom. So it's a slightly different scenario than what we have out here, but it was yeah. fine. I don't have like bad memories of prom, but I don't remember it being the best night of my life either. It was fine. Did you go to yours? I did. Yeah. Should we go ahead and introduce our guest for this week? I suppose we should. Today, we are excited to be talking to Vanessa Garcia-Polanco, who's an experienced leader, researcher, speaker, writer, and organizer on issues around food, agriculture, and climate change. So Vanessa, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So we always ask, what are you growing? So for our farmers, that can cover crops and livestock, but it also covers families, businesses, career, social change, and all kinds of other stuff. Vanessa, what are you growing? I'm growing boundaries because it's a really busy farm bill year. So it's uh, really important for people like me who are really involved in Washington, D.C. to still grow connections and self-care. So the way you do that is by having boundaries, actually shutting down your computer at 6 p.m. and saying no to things, which is really hard for me as a policy co-director at Young Farmers. But I always try to be really mindful of my boundaries. So always growing to take care of myself more and prioritize connections, community, and boundaries. That is a really good one. I'm sure we could all use some some work <laughs> on our boundaries for sure. So, Vanessa, what is your background when it comes to agriculture? And yeah, how did, you, so... how did you end up where you are now? I always like to say, my mom said, I took you out of the countryside, but I didn't take the countryside out of you. 
and so that one's better in Spanish, is, uh, yo te saqué del campo, pero no saqué el campo de ti. Uh, and I come from a really agricultural background and community in the Dominican Republic. I usually compare it to the Midwest of the Dominican Republic because it's where a lot of the tubers and products that we traditionally consume, like batata, cassava, plantains, are produced. And we produce all, 50% of all the eggs in the country. And that town is called Moca in the Dominican Republic. My dad is a farmer. All my grandparents have owned land and worked the land. So when we moved to the United States to rejoin with my family and for my family to pursue more career opportunities, I was really interested in environmental issues with a focus in agriculture, like sustainable agriculture. So that was really shocking to my family. We literally, they literally took me from not a rural community, but like a really agribusiness-centric town to the United States. And now you're going to study agriculture? So that was really shocking for them. But it was also really beautiful because it allowed us as Dominican immigrants to stay connected to a lot of our identity through me studying agriculture. Like I will call my dad asking them about salt production. I will call my uncle asking him about chicken feed one day at 10 p.m. And I always remember that he freaked out. Sometimes I just have a question about feeding animals. And obviously I had to visit a lot of farms and learn a lot about farming in the United States because it was so different than the kind of farming that I grew up. And my family would come to all my field trips and they still come every time I had to go visit a farm. So it has been a beautiful journey of using agriculture to stay connected to my identity as a Dominican immigrant. Can you tell our little listeners a little bit about where you attended school and what you did in your undergraduate and master's programs in terms of studying agriculture? Yeah, sure. So I attended the University of Rhode Island. That is a land-grant university, but agriculture is not the main focus because we are also an an ocean grant that is also a land-grant. So we are really ocean-oriented. So we will take a lot of classes on fishery management, no agriculture. But I was one of the few people in the entire program that was actually really interested in agriculture. But obviously we had your traditional land-grant classes like horticulture, vegetable production, and I got the opportunity to work for Cooperative Extension for the four years of my undergrad. And that really solidified my passion for community outreach, talking to farmers, talking to gardeners about how we can grow food in different ways. And after that, I kept asking my mentors, where should I go to grad school? And everyone kept saying Michigan State. And Michigan State told me, come here. So I got the opportunity to move to Michigan where I learned a lot about agriculture because it's really different from the New England agriculture of Rhode Island. And I had a great time there in a program called Community Sustainability that focused in more alternative agriculture and more community-driven agriculture, but also being one of the biggest land grants in the country. I got to learn a lot about agribusiness management, dairy management, and agricultural economics. When my undergrad had been environmental economics with a concentration on food. So it was just a really full circle opportunities, always driven about programmatic interventions and policy because I was really interested on how do we do we have these land-grant institutions and we have many nonprofits that are working to change our food systems but how do we actually fund them how do we actually institutionalize the support so I got really interested on funding like how do we actually fund things how do we actually allocate money for things and what is the role of federal government to impact our communities through those kind of programs that are impacting us in our daily lives, like cooperative extension, like land-grant universities, like those nonprofits that do outreach and technical assistance to farmers. 
I think as someone who also attended a land grant, I went to Iowa State, I think that the land grant universities get so underestimated for their public work and things like extension, because we think of college as just a place where you go for four years and they hand you a sheet of paper and then they send you a bunch of bills and then that's it. Now, and that's like the extent of the college experience. So I'm wondering, as we have a fair number of non-US-based listeners, if you can explain a little more about what the land-grant system is like and what things like cooperative extension do, because it doesn't seem to be a big thing in other places. Is that correct, Arlene? Yeah, I, yeah, Vanessa, I'm Canadian, and I hear those terms, but yeah, we don't have a similar system in Canada. There's not really an equivalent yeah. system as nationally. There are universities where there are ag programs, but they aren't affiliated in the same way, I wouldn't say. Definitely. And I think that's it's definitely really unique. And actually, there's a specific ad that created a couple of extension systems called the Smith Liver Ad of 1912. I remember that because it's one of my favorite agricultural ads. And basically, it creates a mandate to land-grant universities that they need to extend knowledge, change lives. And I always remember that tagline because it's beautiful. I think we sometimes see universities as this gay-kept places where research is happening that is only for other academics and maybe for the students. But that mandate actually tell the university you need to allocate certain amount of resources to actually share the, re- the research that you're doing to the community, so impacts the community. And we are actually all following better science-based decisions. And when I say science-based decisions, it's not it's only for farmers, it's also for homeowners, residents. Sample, you are right, Couple of Ascension was really unique that we also had a lot of like groundwater education, a lot of residential gardening education, and farmer education, and many other things that I probably do not remember. So it's a, a lot it's a lot of this idea that if you live in a community, the university you should be having resources from the university so you can protect your natural resources. Because again, it's water, grass, watershed, or soils, a lot of those things like that. And usually in other countries, it's just called extension, and it's usually done by the Department of Agriculture. Like, for example, my dad is an extension agent in the Dominican Republic with the Department of Agriculture. But his mandates are really different. His support structures are really different. Wearing in the university is just more structure because there's a set of programs that almost every university does or is mandated to do, especially if it's a land grant, by statutory authority of the, depart- of the, of the government. So I think that's really unique, but it's also really energizing because, at some point, young farmers, every time that we ask our farmers, where do you like to get resources from, they do not say Department of Agriculture, they say Extension. So it's a great way to see how this localized, community-driven education that is science-based is affecting our farmers and our, and our communities. I think, too, as a farmer who went to a land-grant school and then takes a lot of advantage of our local extension office. It's so great to not only have research that's actually being applied to something besides writing papers and putting them in journals that nobody outside the university system will ever see, but to have a lot of extension agents are farmers themselves, are community members themselves, and so having that interpretation between the research that might not be super approachable for a lot of folks 
into something that makes sense in our area and can be put out there by people who farm in our area and know the community is so great to really make that research useful because there's really not a lot of point in doing research that sits in a journal that nobody sees. It's, it's a lot of money and a lot of work for nothing, really. Knowledge is important for the base, for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge that is useful is even better. So. Definitely. And I think, especially in the United States in the past few years, we have invested more in science communication. Like I was part of my science communication club at Michigan State. URI has one of the best science communication trainings in the country right now. So I think right now, after a lot of attacks that happen in science in the United States, we have reinvigorated this idea that we need to be communicating science more effectively because it has an important role to play in our decision-making, in government, in our communities. Yeah, that's a really good point because it's not just about doing the science, but making sure that people understand it and have access to it and, yeah, and to have it be useful in their lives for sure. So you've talked a little bit about your work. You work now at the National Young Farmers Coalition, and I'm going to be the the Canadian co-host again and ask you to tell me <laughs> about what that is, because I'll be honest, I don't know what it is. So if you can tell me a bit about the organization and what you're working on and what the mission is, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I actually think there's like a Canadian counterpart. I do not remember how they're called. But basically, we are a grassroots chapter and membership-based organization. We have 45 chapters nationwide and over 250,000 supporters. Basically, we believe that we want to equip the next generation of farmers with resources so they can farm and focusing on feeding their communities, fighting climate change, and building equity and sustainability in our food system. And the way I came to Young Farmers is really funny. I was a member in Rhode Island and in the Rhode Island chapter a lot of what we do is just go to potluck, go visit farms and meet people. You do a little bit every chapter needs to have a policy component so we will do policy education to how to get involved in the farm bill with the local food policy council or with the agricultural department. So right now I'm policy director. I have been with a coalition for three years and I started as a policy associate so I have grown a lot of the coalition. And a lot of what we do is provide what we usually call movement support to farmers so they can feel that a lot of their needs and wants are being represented and advocated for at the state level and also the federal level here in Washington, D.C. And that's why I'm based in Washington, D.C. Because in my main role is to communicate to elected officials and administrative officials at USDA the concerns we're hearing from our farmers on the ground. And especially in a farm bill year, that is only every five, six years, making sure that we actually introduce legislation and pragmatic changes so the conditions can improve in the ground for our young farmers who are the next generation of farmers who are farming now and are struggling now in the ground to stay farming. So what is, how old is too old to be a young farmer? Well, like, I'm aging out quickly, but... We do not have a definition as a coalition because there are many different definitions. Just to give an example, the Department of Agriculture in the United States says that a beginning farmer, not a young farmer, is anyone with less than 10 years of experience. 
the risk management agency inside USDA, I think it says only five years of farming. We, the United Nations, is anyone under 35. The EU definition of the United States is anyone under 18. So again, there's many different definitions. And because our farmers come from many different backgrounds, some more farmers are like 42 and they just started farming two years ago. Is that a young farmer? For us, it is. Some more farmers are 22 and literally graduated college and are looking to do a farm apprenticeship. So that's one of our members. Again, I think our members, even when we say young in the title, is more values affiliated and less about your age. Even our board and our staff, we our youngest person is 22 and our oldest is 39. And our membership is really broad too. So the other thing is someone who lives in a very, I don't know, normal conservative farm area like Iowa, but in a very liberal small corner of that area, how can we make advocacy and a lot of the work that the Young Farmers Coalition is doing more accessible to a wider range of people? Because I know a fair number of more conventional farmers who don't feel like things like young farmers are necessarily for them, but there are so few farmers and so many stresses against farmers that I think it makes a lot more sense for all of us to work together because we all have a lot more in common than we do differences. But I'm wondering how we approach bringing people in and bringing the community closer generally, because there's enough problems without us fighting each other. Yeah, definitely. And I think a farm bill year is a perfect year to be thinking about that because we do have a really large ecosystem of farm groups in the United States. So if you think young farmers is not the right group for you, cross the street, find another organizing space because there will be other places that have your values and, and also your theory change. Our theory change, we believe in incremental change. That's what we focus a lot on policy. And where others would like to maybe focus more on mutual aid and localized responses, and that's okay. And others would like for a stronger association to represent their interests that is older and more traditional, and that's fine. Because at the same time, we're all going to be fighting for the same thing in the farm bill. We're going to be fighting for more resources for farmers and for rural America and to keep our families fed. Because we all need a farm bill. We're just going to disagree on the details. So I think that's the beauty of the organizing in agriculture. But also you mentioned triggers, and I think there are many things that we all agree that are important. And for example, is the Farmer Stress Assistance Network called FARSAN. That's a specific grant that the United States government created to support farmer mental health and farm working mental health. And that is a program that it has completely bipartisan support. All farm organizations support it because we all want more resources for farmers. So things like that, we all agree on what is needed so we can better equip our farmers to be successful. That's just an example. So what sorts of programs and legislation would people be surprised to hear included in the farm bill? Because I know that there are always things that are in the farm bill that just seem surprising or unexpected 
So I'm wondering what's <laughs> snuck in there this year that we don't know about yet, because it seems like there's always something. I don't think we have anything controversial yet. <laughs> also, just to give you an idea of the timeline for this year. Right now, we are in Markeville season. So on, from now until annual March, people are going to be introducing bills. So things that they want at the farm bill. Then it's going to go to markup. That means the committee is going to discuss if that proposal is worth it to be making to the farm bill. And then we will have an actual farm bill written by the summer. That's the hope. And then they will, it will get voted on by the House and the Senate. And then it will go to conference or what we usually call reconciliation. When they will actually decide if it's something that the House voted versus the House voted, how it can be merged, how it can be reconciled. So a lot of right now, we most of our advocacy groups, like young farmers, we have our list of things that we want. So right now we are working with elected officials to see if we can get a marker bill. To see if some of those weird things or crazy things can actually be introduced. Because if they're not introduced, they're, just a, they're in a piece of paper in my desk. They're not actually being considered by elected officials. For example, last week we got the Justice for Black Farmers Act reintroduced. That was introduced two years ago and now it's actually has a potential to be considered because it's a marker bill in a farm bill year. And for many folks, that bill is really transformative and really outlandish, and we don't know if it's gonna if it's gonna move forward, but it's there. And now we can even consider it during a farm bill year. And there will be many more bills like that that will be introduced to push the boundaries of what a farm bill can look like. But there will be simple bills like literally changing one or two words in one sentence of a program of a program that will probably increase access or will change who is eligible or increase payments. And also those bills are really important because they change programmatic things. They are working or not working. So I think we need to keep ourselves realistic that the farm bill is an opportunity to do nitty-gritty good things, but also to push the envelope a lot. And every farm bill is an opportunity to strengthen our food supply and our food system. For example, in the 2018 Farm Bill, we got the Office of Urban Agriculture, which we never had before. And that was authorized in 2018, and the office has been running now for the past two years. So things like that are really exciting, that we did in a Farm Bill, and now we have it, and we will continue investing on it, God willingly. Am I right, too, in thinking that both the Supplemental Nutrition Program and the School Lunch Program are through the Farm Bill, or are they just through the Department of Ag? I believe they're under agriculture. The only one that is outside of farm bill jurisdiction is Child Nutrition Act, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I feel like that's an unexpected one for a lot of folks that those are under the Ag instead of Human Services, but you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, but also there's a lot of people who wish farm workers were under the farm bill and they're not right now. Which many of us are like, we wish it was there. It would be so much easier to actually do things, um, but they're not. They're, it's outside the jurisdiction of the farm bill. Who are they under the jurisdiction of then? Department of Labor. That's doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Okay, we are. Government. Okay. <laughs> So, Vanessa, how does your experience as an immigrant to the U.S. inform your work? I know you do a lot of volunteer work as well. So how does your background as an immigrant inform the way you use your time for both volunteering and your paid work? Definitely. I would say 
when people ask me what is my community, obviously I can always say Dominican, but I actually, since the moment I migrated, I had never been surrounded by a lot of Dominicans, only my family. So I always say my community is the food and agriculture space because I feel that's the community that receives me and welcomes me. But at the same time, I know that I also have a lot of privilege when we know 80% of food system workers look like me, brown woman and immigrant, but they do not all of them get to lobby in Washington, D.C. to change the conditions or food system. So for me, it's also knowing that I have a lot of privilege, but also that my identities and experiences allow me to champion for things that a lot of people like me don't get to champion for. And that's one of the reasons that I'm in the coalition, because a lot of our members are first-generation immigrants or the children of immigrants that want to stay connected to their agrarian background. And also because we do have an intersectional vision that farm workers are the future of our food system. And there are many things that we need to change in our food system to reduce the harm and oppression for people who have been disenfranchised. So that's something I always keep in mind as an immigrant, as I navigate my work. There's not a lot of people like us. There's actually, I met really few Dominicans that do my job. <laughs> but it's also really exciting. I don't know just Dominican, also an immigrant, a woman, an Afro-Latina. So it's also bringing all those identities and experiences. And even other identities, like I'm from, the, I say I'm from Rhode Island. When I'm asked, where are you from? I say I'm Rhode Island, I'm Dominican. A little bit of the Midwest because I lived there for two years. And all those identities you bring to your work. So you always have to remember that you have to bring your full self and your authentic self. You've mentioned the term food system a few times, and I don't know that's something that we in agriculture always think about. Can you define what the food system incorporates? Because I think a lot of us as primary producers just think of our role as we grow, we raise the food and people eat it. But the food system is more complex than that. Yeah, definitely. And I always like to think, we cannot think on silos. We always need to be thinking intersectional and systems-wide. So when we when I say food system, I usually think everything from inputs in the production to waste management of that food that we that you grow, and everything in between. And that is bottlenecks in distribution, in processing, how we access food through supermarkets, farmers markets, and how we handle the byproducts of consuming that food, like food waste, and compost, and other natural resources that are part of that. And obviously the policy, all of this is happening under an economic policy regime. So we have to be thinking about what policies enable food production, what policies allow for food access. And all of that is thinking about the food system as an interconnected regime, something that is happening in silos. And I think we all gotten better at thinking about food as a part of a system during the pandemic when we're like, Farmers are producing food, but where's my food? It's not in the supermarket. So people realizing that the many waves in the or food moves and food supply change and the interconnectors, all that. I think it's moments like that we need to push ourselves to be thinking it is a system. So I would love that the farm bill will not be called a farm bill. I would love it to be called a food systems bill because there are things on the farm bill like exports and trade that you will never think, going back to your previous questions, there are also governed by those laws and it's because we're we think about food holistically in a cycle not just in production if we were just if it was actually a farm bill it will only be, it will be like maybe a cutter of that bill there's 13 titles in that bill 
So we had to think about all the things, production, conservation, soil, so many things uh, when we're thinking about food. So that's why I prefer to say food system or like food and agriculture sometimes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as both Americans, and I think it's similar in Canada, there seems to be a real lack of acknowledgement of how of the importance of immigrants in our food system. And as someone who lives in a town with a processing plant, and I know that the what people picture when they think of someone who's involved in ag in the U.S. is a white man in his 60s in overalls with a straw hat. And certainly looking around our processing plants and our dairies and our fields, that's not what the face of American agriculture looks like. I'm wondering what we can do both to draw awareness to that and to really push for some immigration reform because this whole bringing people here illegally so we can exploit them is bullshit and it is not a system I am proud to be part of and whether people want to admit that our system depends on those immigrants or not doesn't really matter because it does whether they like it or not mm-hmm. and so it would really be nice to reform it in a way that all people have access to social programs and safety through being able to call the police without worrying about getting deported and whatever else. So I'm wondering where there are weak spots that are more effective for us to lean on towards actually getting some changes made. I don't like it. And I don't like it. Let's just put it that way. It's bullshit. We should be decent to other humans. It doesn't feel like it should be a big debate. Anyway. What I have to say, aside from immigrants themselves and immigrant communities, I actually find farmers some of the biggest allies for immigration reform because they understand the need. I have met farmers in Michigan, in Vermont, they are like, I need, we need to normalize this, we need to regularize this, that is the way we, we need reform. Because they understand the challenges, they understand the supply chain issues, they understand the labor shortages, they understand the economics of it, and at the same time, they, they're really passionate about agriculture, and they're passionate about working with our immigrant communities and partners as partners for food production to keep our families fed. But as you said, it's really challenging when so many people still have this idea what an American farmer is and gets to be. And obviously a lot of that's tied with like power dynamics and branding and a lot of this big farm groups have perpetuated who, this idea of who gets to be a farmer. Uh, and I think that's why I appreciate so much what my team does that is always having these beautiful graphics or farmers because we need to be challenging people and elected officials on how does a farmer look like uh, and how does a farm look like because we do know a lot of farm workers still keep a farm on the side and do like really extensive gardening even when they're working as farm workers but we do not consider that agriculture sometimes so we need to be pushing those narratives on who is a farmer and who gets 
in what does a farm look like in our cognitive brain and give a lot of dissonance and discomfort to people. And a lot of what I do is that in DC. I literally go to members of Congress office and be like, this is what my farmer looks like. They're growing 30 different crops. They're first generation Latino, Mexican American. Uh, and they're selling at a farmer's market. They go like, what? They're not growing soy and corn? And they have not been farming here for six generations? Yeah, I know. So it's a lot of, we need to be challenging ourselves to dismantle this idea. And also a lot of what I do is actually just taking a lot of pictures of me at work. Like a lot of people don't believe that I get to do what I do. And I say, yeah, this is what a policy director or a farming organization looks like. It's me. I'm brown with curly hair and I'm an immigrant. You get to see it if I'm in the halls of Congress. We need to be we need to be doing the really aggressive PR campaign, but also this narrative change that immigrants feed us. And immigrants are needed in our food supply chain and across our food system in every step from production, from processing, from distribution, from supermarkets to compost and waste management. It's everywhere. We are everywhere. And we need to do better. Completely, we need to do better. And last year, we came close. Last year, we, in the United States, we had a Farm Worker Modernization Act that is a bill that has been tried to get passed for 12, 14 years now. And last year we came really close, like negotiations were really high, we were making a lot of progress, but it unfortunately fell through. And the proposal will create, create better working conditions for a lot of workers, increase guest visas, and it will actually provide a path to citizenship for many undocumented farm workers in the United States. But unfortunately it fell through. But now we have a new Congress so we can start all over again, because that's what we do. But again, all of that can take forever. I obviously wish we could do an amnesty tomorrow and we can normalize all those individuals who are contributing so much to our food system. But we can need to keep pushing those narratives. We need to keep reminding people that immigrants feed us and immigrants are important for food and agriculture and for our national security, for the future of America. Because we know from research that if we farm workers are allowed to become citizens or residents, they're, all, they're also likely to also become farm owners. And when we have so many white men in overalls in 60s about to retire, we need to be creating a pipeline of the next generation of farmers, farm workers who want to take over our farms. It seems like, too, so much of that plays into talking about a food system rather than just farm ownership, because it's it doesn't matter how many chickens... I raise if I can't get them processed. And <laughs> I don't, I'm going to assume it's that we just don't challenge people to think about how crops get harvested. And I know there's a lot I don't know about how all sorts of crops get raised because I live in Iowa and we don't grow that stuff. But it's not like celery flies out of the fields and just like, transports to the grocery store by itself. There are all these people here, and I feel not to get too woo about it, but when we say that the American dream is that you come here and you work really hard and you have a family and you work hard some more and your kids are doing better than you are and maybe you open a business and you settle down and you buy a house, whatever, that that is the American dream. And to have people coming here and doing all of that and then saying, no, you still can't be citizens and there is no way for you to become citizens is really obnoxious and offensive. 
end. If people are good enough to come here and bust their asses to feed us, it seems like they should be good enough to be allowed to stay here without being afraid of what will happen. Living the town that I live closest to now was subject to a huge ice raid almost 20 years ago now. And seeing what it did to this community is terrifying. And they came and raided a meat plant while kids were at school. So kids came home and their parents had been arrested and just Mm -hmm. what that was like. And I find it offensive on a personal level to think that people work this hard to feed us and we're just like, meh, we can replace you. That's not who I want to be and that's not who I want to raise my children to be. So as a, I think especially as a parent, it is really hit home to me about what we're raising our kids to see farms and food systems as. So, Unfortunately, most of us as eaters and as consumers in the American food system will complicit or oh, perpetuating this. But at the same time, we many of us have the tools to advocate for it to change. And obviously, it all depends. I find citizen to be a really triggering word because who gets to be a citizen is police and it has changed so much over the history of America. But at the same time, it's also a reminder that it comes with privileges that others do not have in a society that is extremely hierarchical about immigration status. And we know that depending on your language and your immigration status and your gender, the things that you have access to do and to become in American agriculture are completely stratified differently. So I think we need to remember that we a lot of that guilt also comes a lot of privilege and we need to use it to change and transform our food system. Is asking the farms that we work with, what are your hiring practices? What are your labor practices? Are you advocating for H2O reform? Are you advocating for immigration reform? Because we do have a responsibility to our community members to say that you belong here, you are feeding us, and when things need to change, we cannot set this as the norm. But in America, it's just so easy. Even America, this is part of the global food system because Mexican farm workers are feeding Canadians, Tensunska, and many other things around the the world. I think we just need to work every day to build a food system that we want to and challenge it, exactly as you say, and not take that guilt towards action and challenge it. We're all taking a big sigh here. So when I was looking into your work a little bit, you uh, you were on your website, you, there was a section about a workshop that you run called Food is Never Just Food. And I feel like we've already talked about that issue that food isn't just food. But can you tell us a little bit more about that workshop workshop, and what what who you're communicating that to and what your message is? Yeah, definitely. So I've done that workshop now for almost six years, more or less. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's when I was studying like food and agriculture in undergrad. And it was really, it's, the premise is really easy. Some of us use food to understand society and systems of power oppression. And when I think about an apple or breakfast or any meal, I think about it, who gets to eat that food and why. And what has led to that food to be this way. What are the policies that have enabled this? What are the social contracts that have enabled this? What are the stereotypes that have enabled this 
idea. So a lot of what I do in that workshop is just to teach people to think critically about food and to write their experiences, especially for immigrants and young people, and especially the emotional part. I think it's so easy to talk to about food. Like, what do you have for breakfast? What do you have for dinner? What is your favorite food? Sometimes we forget to attach the meanings, the emotions, the history, the stories and the history that come when we talk about food. So a lot of what I do in that workshop is just to push people to write. I'm going to give you an apple. Tell me anything you want about that apple, any memories you have about that apple. And then I'm going to tell you about how a specialty crop production enables so much apple production in certain parts of the country. So it's, it's this idea of doing almost like a stump speech about your connection to food and to encourage you to see food as an opportunity for you, for you to engage civically. Because I do not believe, maybe, I'm not sure, that I will be as engaged civically and politically if I haven't found a home in food and agriculture advocacy. So this is my way to encourage other people to be passionate about food, but also passionate about food advocacy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a question here because I just thought about it. Anyone who's involved in community building and advocacy and this sort of work, as you mentioned, goes to a lot of potlucks. I'm wondering what your go-to potluck dish is. Talking about the importance, the emotional importance of food, because going to a potluck where everything is terrible is the worst, like solidly the worst. So I'm wondering if you can give us some new ideas for stuff to take to potlucks. Oh my god. Plus, I don't know think... if it's different in Rhode Island. It seems like maybe less jello salad than there is. I mean, oh, yeah. What is yours jello salad? Most food advocacy <laughs> in Iowa doesn't get jello salad, but a lot of other community events do. I just have so. to say, farmer potlucks, I, the best food I ever ate in my life are farmer's potlucks. They're like salads that live for free in my mind and in my memory that I ate at young farmer's potlucks five years ago. So, farmers are amazing cooks, that's all I'm going to say. I don't think I can give you my go-to because I think it all depends on the season. It depends on what I have been reading. It depends what is what I have in the kitchen. And also, I realize I feel like I, I host a lot of people for dinner, but I don't go to a lot of potlucks. For example, the last party that I threw, it was a brunch, and I made mango. That is Dominican mashed plantains with onions and butter. And it was winter, so I could get away with that. But if we have in summer, we're we'll probably done something else. Like I threw a strawberry party once because it was a strawberry season. <laughs> so sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, I, so. I have to say too, when you said that about salads living free in your brain, I still have fond memories of a beet and quinoa salad that mm-hmm. I had at a beginning farmers conference like eight years ago, probably, and I still think about it on a fairly regular basis because it was really good. (laughs) Okay, so aside from that, back to what's actually on our list. What are you working on right now and what are your goals going forward, both shorter term and what's the big goal? What's the, you will die happy if they put this on your tombstone, sort of a... Yeah. Uh, What's okay, the big well, one? <laughs> I know you're ready for this. It's. I have been trying to write a book about my guy and my advice for young people on how to get involved in food system. It's really hard, um, but it's something I'm working on. 
And I, hopefully it will be done by the time I turn 30. That's my personal goal. And a more immediate short, go- short goal, my goal is to get a marker belt introduced in the next two months so we can get a program that focuses on land access for young farmers. That's my priority for the next two months and for the rest of this year and a farm bill year. So I think those two things can go in my tombstone. Let's see which one will, will make it. I like the idea of an advice book that also had recipes for things like having people over and potlucks and maybe a regional potluck directory of <laughs> things that will go over well in different places. In case you end up maybe in that's Iowa your book, that Katie. jello salad. That's your book. (laughs) I will twist my arm, undertake the research necessary to travel the world, going to potlucks and seeing what people eat different places. Yeah, you volunteer for that. Yes. Yeah, but you can only be a farmer potluck. That's the yeah, just yeah, just farmer ones. Yeah, for sure. So I guess that leads well into. I mean, we are a parenting podcast, and so what. Not to take the whole plot of your book, obviously, but what tips do you have for young people? If we have, we've got kids, our listeners have kids who, you know, even if they're not involved in production agriculture, I think a lot of us hope that our kids will take what they've learned on the farm and bring it into their careers in some way. So what advice would you have for people, for young people who are thinking about getting involved in ag in, a, in different parts of the system? Yeah, the first one is volunteer. Find your community, find your corner. There's always people doing amazing stuff. You don't have to replicate the wheel, you just have to join the movement and the momentum and find your niche at it. I think for me, it's really gratifying to. I remember five years ago being at conferences, being afraid to talk to the speaker because I thought they were like someone really famous in food and agriculture. And now I talk to him every day on my DMs because we're good friends. So it's amazing to me how easy it is to build community. But you can only build a community if you're intentional and if you're brave. So my advice to all your people is you need to be brave. You need to get out of your comfort zone. And you need to be willing to public speak. You need to be willing to write. You need to be willing to say things that make other people uncomfortable. I describe my job as making people uncomfortable because I'm always asking hard questions like, is that really the best program that you can do for young farmers? Is that the best outreach that you can do to a farmer of color? That's literally the question that I ask everyone every single day to every elected officials, to everyone at USDA, every single day. So you have to get really comfortable using your voice and being courageous and being brave. It's good I advice really, for someone of any age. I really appreciate that you're doing this work. It's... We need more people asking if that's really the best you can do, because I think too many people are told to quit being pushy and sit down and appreciate what you have. And you can appreciate what you have and still ask if that's really the best that someone can do. Become a lobbyist. That's that's what I get to do. So in terms of volunteering, do you have any, you know, your kind of top five organizations that if someone was felt like they were wanting to make a difference but didn't know where to start. What are some organizations that you feel like people can really get involved in and make a difference if they're looking to give their time in some way? Definitely. I would say always keep it local. There are so many great stuff happening in our communities. Like I did a lot of local stuff before, obviously, I came to D.C. and Rhode Island. My office or my major had a special volunteer program just for kids. And I did that for several years. And then they asked me to run the farmer's market. And then I ran the farmer's market for four years. And then after that, they asked me to join the Chamber of Commerce board. 
and then I joined the Food Policy Council. So all those things, Office of the Major, Youth Programs, Food Policy Council, Farmers Markets, Chamber of Commerce, they're probably happening in your community already. You just have to find them and find opportunities to plug in. So I definitely recommend those at a localized level. And also when it comes more to food and agriculture space, most of the more traditional associations will have members or will have chapters in some states, like National Young Farmers Coalition. We have 45 chapters. But if in, if you want to get involved and there's no chapter in your place, you can start a chapter or you can just be a general member. So even if there's a place where you don't have that community, you can still be plugged into the national community. Because, for example, we do a lot of fellowships. So we have national fellows. They are not together geographically, but they come together once a month to talk about different issues. And they get trained in public speaking. They get trained in policy. They're coming to D.C. next month to come to their elected officials. So don't think ge- think geographically first and community first, but don't let that limit you. Some of my best friends and my people that I organize the most, we have never been in the same geographic area together. We are one is in New York, one is in the Dominican Republic, one is in Europe, but we are all organizing together towards the same goals. So think geographically, but also think that your community is not limited to that geographic area. I can say to someone who's been involved in a fair number of community things that if people are worried about putting themselves out there, I have never yet met a community group that says, we have enough people, we have enough members, we are not, we don't need anybody new. Every community group that I've met has loved having new folks come in. You know, it's, yeah, but I actually want to warm about that. I have uh-oh. experience. I have experience gatekeeping, and it's really hard. It's really sad because there were spaces where I wanted to volunteer more. I wanted to give more, and they were they wouldn't let me. They were gatekeepers. Yeah, and no, I feel, and that's, especially when you're yeah. young, with a lot of energy, want to change things, you're gonna find gatekeepers. So you have to be ready for that. But in that moment, you have to decide, do you want to invest in them or you want to maybe, I usually try to avoid telling people go and create your own thing, but there are moments you have to go and create your own thing. If the gatekeepers won't let you in, just go find another table or build that table because some people will never let you sit at the table. But you have to know, you have to know, you you have to know. And it, it, there were some spaces that took me a long time to be like, actually, this is not worth my time. This is actually really draining me. I'm wasting my time. And then I changed course and I was literally given no seat at the table. They were letting me run the meetings. So things like that, you have to know. But you also need to have, you need to have a body check system. Is this really the right space for me? Or can you validate if you also feel like this? Are we wasting our time here? So you need to also watch out. There are gatekeepers, but you also don't let that stop you. That's a great point because honestly... I have an immense amount of privilege in this space because I'm a middle-aged white lady and I still encounter some amount of gatekeeping. So I can only imagine what it's like for anyone who doesn't have the privilege of being a middle-aged white lady. But yeah, there's definitely, if people want to gatekeep, you can tell them to F off because there are plenty of other groups that would love to have your enthusiasm and your energy and your dedication. And if there aren't, you can start your own, which is also a great point. So yes, thank you for reminding us of that because it is, it's easy not to notice gatekeeping that doesn't apply to you. And it's good to be reminded of it. Yeah, and also, I think we also have to remember if you do, if you're in a position of gatekeeping, you also have a responsibility to 
open the door. I was appointed I think, to the Chamber of Commerce because the director literally called me and fought for me to have a spot. I was 18. I was not even thinking of serving in a, in a nonprofit board. But you also have to realize you also have a lot of privilege and a lot of access that you can avoid gatekeeping by actually being an open door. I don't know. What is the opposite of a gatekeeper? A door opener? <laughs> Someone who's got the key, I don't know. Yeah, we get, we understand the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. It's the gatekeeper leaves the gate open and then goes out and finds more people and shoves them in through the gate. Hopefully there in like go, a friendly, yeah. welcoming way and not in a, haha, sucker, you're on the board now kind of way. Yeah, or take the gate right off the hinges, something like that. I like that. We early, don't need the gate dismantler. Be the person <laughs> who leaves go. the gate open. It's bad on the farm. It's good in community. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not if you've got cows. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Open that gates, bad for cows, good for people. I like that. Yeah, that's right. That'll Just pick be your the gates. title of our book, Arlene. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So one more parenting related question, because I'm always trying to figure out ways to tie it back to our other aspect of our podcast, which is the parenting piece. How did your parents and your family help to foster your independence. You know, if you're on the Chamber of Commerce at 18, that means you've got some big cheerleaders, I'm guessing, in your house. So how did your family support you and help create the person that you are? Because we want to try and make kids who turn out like you. Honestly, it's led by example. My dad was part of the Rotaries growing up. And my dad is such a like, servicier person, like oh, really always doing something for someone else. And my mom is the same. My mom was an educator in the Dominican Republic, and she was always volunteering, working on political campaigns, helping young people with their problems. And then when we moved to the United States, they completely changed. My mom especially, because my dad stayed in the DR. And I literally recognized, it took me a few years to recognize, but I literally became my parents in the United States. And obviously for them, they were like, why are you always in a meeting? Why are you always volunteering? But at the same time, they're really proud of me. And they are my, and it's not just my parents. Like my uncles will drive me to meetings. They will drive me to volunteering. So at the end, it's just creating a family culture where service is expected and service is part of what is to be a family. And I think for me, that was really obvious growing up. So it was just a matter of doing it when I migrated to the to the United States. And obviously, they're immensely proud of me. They just in awe because I grew up really sheltered. Like I was not allowed to go out late or do many things that are like normal for American kids. I grew up in a really Catholic Dominican household, and my mom sometimes just sits in the couch some days when I send her a picture of me giving a keynote, being like, "How did this happen?" And I'm like, because you did the, you did, you had the right measure of restraint and independence. <laughs> we always say, for example, my mom didn't want me to go to, away to college. That was 45 minutes away in Rhode Island. She wanted me to go to community college. And I will always remember my being like, you have to let her go. She needs to grow. It was like that right measure. Like I will see my mom every weekend because they will come visit me. I will come back. It was 45 minutes away, but they still trusted me to live far away. So is that right among all independence and constraint? I think if your kids are rebelling by getting involved in community <laughs> organizing and lobbying, you're doing a good job. Please tell your parents thank you, thank you because I'm impressed by this, that their kid rebelled by 
getting more involved in the community. Like exactly, but then they said that example. That was the only option for me. Oh, you want you wanna you want me to be serious? I wanna do exactly what you do: volunteer a thousand hours a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't need you to drive me to parties, but I need you to drive me to these meetings. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And it can be real or made up. One of my passion projects is ethnobotany, so like in herbalism. So I would love a category of doing the best, like the best tonic or like the best plant ID or something like that. I'm training to be a certified herbalist. So I will have a category of guess the plan. What are the uses? Who uses it? Something like that. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's a real category in the county fair. Hey, you can, yeah, we category. say you can make it up so you win. And that sounds like a really good one. I would not be any good at it. So I wouldn't even compete with you. So. Yeah. Something that really influenced my, not my reading book, how I think of life is the work of Tavia Butler. And she always said, you have to be ready. If society were to crumble tomorrow, what skill do you have? And obviously, as a person who works with farmers, they can all grow food. I can I am not that good of a grower, disclaimer. So I always like, let me know plants and botany and their uses, like herbal uses. So that's my contribution if society were to crumble tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> we all have to play our part, right? You don't have to be self-sufficient. You just have to have a skill that is valuable one. to other it's people. One. Just one. All right. So we will move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing entries for us and we will play them on the show. So check the show notes for the link. You can leave us a voice memo there or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we will read it out for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? I feel like one of the biggest stumbling blocks in my life with little kids and a farm and a job and living out in the country is the small errands that you cannot outsource or do online or whatever. And you have to go to one very specific place to get done. Yes. I have to go get my oil changed. It's just, it's not a big thing. It's not enough of a thing to put it in my calendar, but it takes an hour longer than the, even the actual oil change does because I have to drive to town and drive home. It's just little shit like that. Like, it's not rewarding. It's not like you look at your car and you're like, it's not like getting your car detailed where it looks great after an oil change. Like, it, it looks the same <laughs> yeah, except right. it doesn't blow up. Yeah. Like, the little sticker the on the dash tells stuff. you that you've got a few more yeah, like, miles to go, but that's it. Wow, how exciting. My car may not blow up from this reason in the next 3,000 miles. Yeah, It's lame, and I don't want to do it. And I feel stupid that I don't want to do it because it's just an oil change. Like, it's just part of being an adult. But I don't yes. want to. Yeah, but it's so, one more thing. It's just one more thing. One more thing. Vanessa, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? I think just like having too many meetings. I'm like trying to be really protective of my time. I'm like, please do not schedule anything. Please don't. Yeah. So, I know there's a little time slot there, but don't put anything in it. It's fine. Literally, literally. I'm like, please get her like 15 women and eat lunch. So I think it's been really, oh, please give me a break, everyone. Even when my job is to meet with people. But what I try to do is not to take meetings Mondays and Fridays. 
Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday and a social butterfly, and then on Fridays I can recharge. <laughs> That's good, yeah. And then give yourself some time to actually do some of the things that you said you were going to do when you were in all those meetings, too. Exactly. Is that the part I'm missing, Arlene? The doing the things? The leaving yourself time to do the things that you said you were uh, going yes, to do. Oh, yes, yeah, you need to slot that in, yeah. Okay. I'll put that on my to-do list then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Schedule yourself those. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like leaving yourself Monday free is genius, though, because it feels like a good start to the week to not start off already behind. And by free, without meetings, not actually yeah. free. Yeah, to do the do some work. Yeah. So Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? So mine is, I'm out of this stage where I know exactly what my kids are doing at all times, which is fine. They're getting older. Mine range from eight to 17 now, Vanessa. But now I'm at the stage where sometimes I don't actually know where they are. And like last night, for example, I went to go and let my daughter know that supper was ready. And I'd forgotten that she was going out for supper with a friend, which is fine. But it's just like, I'm barely managing to keep my own schedule straight in my head. And now the people in my house, not that they need me to do anything about it necessarily, but one of these days I'm going to drop a ball in terms of the people that need to actually be picked up or dropped off. And yeah, there's too many additional schedules plus my own schedule for me to keep straight anymore. It it appears they have lives of their own, which is a real pain. I don't know when that started. So we want to thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us today. If people want to connect with you online, learn more about what you're doing, have a chat on a, not on a Monday or a Friday, where should they find you? They can find me on Twitter, BGP Visions. They can follow me on Instagram to see my, my Congress adventures, Vanessa Garcia Polanco. And they can always follow what I'm doing with policy, National Young Farmers Coalition. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. This is great.